Hello and welcome to the Shape of Work, a podcast series by Springworks. My name is Anoop and I am your host. Each week we'll be talking to top people managers across the world on the future of work and how it's shaping our workplace. So sit back and get ready to find out more from these movers and shakers as we have a no holds barred anything goes conversation with them about their journey, their insights, their thoughts, and most importantly their ideas and vision for the workplace of the future. Join in on the conversation. Leave a comment and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shape of Work podcast and for this episode we have a very special guest with us Luke Jones who is the director of senior level permanent staffing at Randstad India. Hi Luke, thank you for joining us today. No, thank you for having me. It's an honor. So to begin with, could you please take us through your career journey so far? Sure. Well, I'm 49 and I've been working in recruitment for 25 years, mostly uh in agencies but also on the in-house side as well on the client side i actually began my recruitment career back in the east european country poland i worked there for a couple of years for a staffing agency called antal who are present in india as well then i went client side and worked for a crm it company called sebel which is part of oracle now based in prague in czech republic and then i moved to moscow in 2002 where i worked for almost 20 years most of that was with antal but i also worked uh, for a company called fercroft now the main difference is that antal specializes in permanent staffing whereas fercroft is much more on the contract workers and then a year ago i relocated to bangalore where i worked for randstad and i head up the executive uh, search division uh, which obviously is permanent recruitment so here i am 25 years later still going strong as you should have I been mean, 25 years down the line it's like pretty long journey and now that you settled in india how do you like it do you like india Yeah no it's fascinating I had been here before about 15 years ago I came as a tourist to Delhi and Agra about 10 years ago I came to a conference in Mumbai but I never thought that I'd be living and working here and I had recruited for some Indian companies in uh, Russia and Central Asia I used to go to Kazakhstan Uzbekistan quite a lot um but yeah never thought I'd be here but I'm delighted to be here it's obviously a fascinating place I'm from the UK originally which you know has huge links with India. Uh so you know I really can't think of a better place to be at the moment especially from a work point of view. You know the economy is strong predicted to grow and obviously there's a huge demand for our services because what we're seeing is that companies are growing more quickly than people themselves are developing and although there is a trend very much for promoting from within which is normal there is definitely a need for bringing in strong talent from the outside to add to what they actually have at the moment yeah definitely so since you have such a mixed background especially when it comes to your career trajectory uh, how do you think the values and beliefs of employee weave the culture in an organization because we live in a globalized world of multinational organizations how do you think these diverse culture could be interconnected to help an organization being run smoothly i think the important thing is that obviously companies need to have uh, a strong corporate culture let's say that is reflected globally but they do need to take local specifics into account and the companies who are able to do this usually thrive and do very well the ones who are like this is how we do it in our country and that's how we're going to do it everywhere else uh typically fail or they stagnate uh because 
you know, there's the old expression that uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I've seen many people come into new markets and just try to copy paste what worked in their home country or even a neighboring country. And strangely, it didn't. And they can't work out why. And it's because they haven't uh, taken yeah the local factors into account. And Obviously, when you go to places, you hear like, oh, our country is different. Everybody loves to talk about how their country is different. And I believe there is more that unites us than divides us. But there are specifics about how business is done. So, yes, it's got to come from the top, uh, but it also needs to come from the bottom that, uh, let's say, visiting execs need to bear that in mind and, let's say, have the best of both worlds. Yeah, definitely. So uh, another very important fact that I would want to tell my listeners is that Luke has so far visited 156 countries, which is like huge. It's humongous. So how can cultural, like successful cross-culture communication, if we have to talk about it, can you provide examples with cultural norms and practices? What I mean, what are the different cultural differences that you saw when you went into different countries, you know, when you worked there? And how do you think it can be intermingled to, you know, like, as I said, for smooth functioning of an organization? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I'm obviously well-traveled. I mean, there's 195 countries officially uh, in the world, according to the United Nations. So I've got 39 to go. But one of the things I see is the fact that, uh, yeah, you know, there are uh, specifics to each place. And unfortunately, many people, um, as I said earlier, just assume that, oh, everything works the same everywhere. I mean, you know, one of the specifics, not just about India, but about Asia in general, is that people don't like saying no. Okay. And, you know, this obviously um, can be a little bit frustrating if you're not used to it. Um, the first thing I was taught when I came to India is if an Indian guy says to you, yes, but that almost certainly means no. Okay. Or I'll look into it or something. Um, again, yes, sir, usually just means I'm listening. It doesn't necessarily mean I've understood you. Okay. But again, I was used to that. I've done a lot of business in the past with China, Korea, Japan, where, you know, even I will do my best essentially means no. Having said that, on the flip side, um, having worked in Russia for a long time, they're extremely direct. You know, everything is like, yet, they're like, no. And, you know, you can be taken aback by that. It almost comes across as rude. But on the other hand, the beauty of that is at least you know where you stand. Okay. You don't beat around the bush, uh, wasting time with someone who's clearly not interested. And you can either say, all right, well, what do we have to do to turn it into a yes? Or if it's a definite no, then all right, well, yeah, let's not waste any time. Let's move on and deal with someone else who might be interested. And Brits can be a little bit guilty of being somewhere in the middle. I mean, I can remember Russian colleagues saying to me, Luke, why did Brits say not really when they actually mean no? All right, fair point. Or have you ever done this? Well, not recently. Probably means I've never done it. Okay. And again, you know, another example was when um, one of my ex-Russian colleagues moved to the UK and said, Luke, please help. You know, people say things to me like, uh, call me anytime and then get annoyed that I rang them at nine o'clock at night or on a Sunday afternoon. And, you know, we're saying, well, why why say that if you don't mean it? And again, Americans will always say, like, how are you doing? And some people have said, like, oh, they're really interested in how I'm doing. It's like they're not. OK, how are you doing? Just means hi. OK, it's just a greeting. But again, if you're not used to that, um, then it can take a bit of getting used to. 
All right. Um, you know, I found this in some cultures that you ask someone in the street for directions and, you know, they don't want to admit that they don't know. All right. And they'll send you somewhere really just to try and help. Okay. Um, so again, you get used to this. And I think the best way to overcome it is to actually go to these places, um, you know, try to dismiss the stereotypes. And what I did is I actually wrote a book uh, when I was based in Moscow called Why Russians Don't Smile. All right. A little bit provocative, but that is the main stereotype people have. And typically people would arrive and say, oh, wow, it's not like that at all. And of course, people are asking me, Luke, when are you going to write a book called Why Indians Always Smile? So I thought, OK, I've uh, I've actually started that. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to call it that, by the way. But again, you know, there are a lot of stereotypes that need to be dismissed that, you know, if you ask a European who's never been to India, you know, what do you think of India? They've probably watched a Bollywood movie. So they think that there's dancers going down the street with elephants on either side and the other half of the country are sitting on mountaintops doing yoga or chanting mantras or either that or they've watched Slumdog Millionaire. And I'm like, guys, come out here and see what it's really like and you'll have a much better idea. I mean, yeah, that's so important. And you actually get to know all these about all these things when you actually visit. Yeah. Which is the, I think, the main idea behind um, this, you know, this age of multinational organizations is to understand what diverse culture stands for, what cultures are really. And it's so important, you know, to have that interconnectedness because they're going to be employees working from different backgrounds, coming from different backgrounds. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I mean, like, this is actually the fourth edition. And when I wrote the first one, I gave it to a senior director of a big US IT company who said to me, Luke, great book, but I'm just worried that too many foreigners will read it. They'll totally ignore all the advice you give because they still think they're smarter. And that's and so I wrote in the next edition, I quoted that and wrote, don't be one of those. Okay, do listen, you know, to what your colleagues have to say. Uh, but again, people can help themselves when they instead of saying that won't work here, try suggesting what will. Okay. So if you say, look, you know, that's unlikely to work in this part of the world. I mean, simple example. IKEA, when it opened in Russia, was extremely successful. All right, because Russians like building stuff. Okay, they've got a hobby. Hey, great. I can, you know, flat pack furniture off. I go take it home and start building. China, they struggled because people are like, what? You know, I'm going to have to build my own furniture. I'm not doing that. And when IKEA opened in India, the footfall was extremely high. But the sales were disappointing, at least to begin with, because people took a family excursion there and sort of walked around and had a look and then, you know, maybe bought a spoon or an ice cream at the end, um, you know, but didn't actually buy as much as Ikea hoped. But again, you've got to start from somewhere. But, you you know, you've got to take these things into account, you know, when you open up over here. Yeah, I mean, localization is very important, as we say. I mean, if IKEA is opening here, they need to really localize their business processes because obviously the cross the culture differences are there, um, irrespective of how much we ever want to like bypass it. Yeah, but you know, they, as I said, they they seem to be growing, so they're obviously doing something right, and I'm pretty sure they'll have done their research. You know, it's a very successful organization, and. I just use that as a simple example. But, you know, I've noticed it, uh, that uh, the thing about the Indian market is it's so big. You can't dip your toe in the water here. You've got to come in big if you're going to be successful here. Yeah, definitely. So since we're talking about communication, I mean, cross-culture communications, how can individuals develop their cross-culture communication skills? What strategies or approaches can they use to enhance their cultural intelligence? 
Um, Often, I would say, look, honestly, ask people, you know, inquire, say to people, look, you know, how do you do this in your country? What's this like, you know, in the markets where you operate? Because again, there are specifics, like, for example, you know, there are certain parts of the world, like in the UK, everyone starts work very early. Okay, but by, you know, five past six, the place is empty, everyone's in the pub or on their way home, whereas other markets will start later, but they'll work later, you know, and ask people what works for you. Okay, you go to the Middle East, and obviously, Friday is their day off. Now, having said that, there are some who will adapt, um, and will come back, you know, to you on a Friday, but and won't be offended if you don't answer them on a Sunday. Okay, so usually I ask, look, you know, what works for you? Okay, how do you do this in your country? Um, names is another one that people often struggle with. Okay, because my name Luke is spelled the French way, L-U-C, and teachers at high school in the UK growing up would see a list of names and think it was Lucy with the Y missing. All right, um, which obviously uh, was always amusing. But again, you, you come to someone like India and you see M.S. Dhoni, and we would think, well. Where's the first name? Where's the last name? If you don't know, is he Mr. Dhoni or, you know, what's the MS? Now, again, I typically say to people, look, it's perfectly okay to ask. All right. The Chinese and the Koreans and the Vietnamese typically put the surname first and then the last name. All right. Um, But sometimes for our sake, they turn it round. All right. So, but again, you know, if you're not sure, there's no problem at all with saying, look, you know, how do you like to be addressed? I mean, personally, I think, you know, I don't like to be called Mr. Jones because uh, it makes me feel even older than I already am. Um, but some people think it's a sign of respect. All right. So, again, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we live in a world which is like, as long as people are respected, everyone is respected, we should really give them the you know opportunity yeah. to operate however they want to which is so important and that's how we build relationships that's how we build teams in an organization which is so important i mean not in just organizations and otherwise in life as well that's how you build relationships so as we're moving to the end of this podcast the last question would be like june is the month of pride as we all know how important do you think diversity equity and inclusion is in today's world from the organization point of view and from in life general I mean, I think it's hugely important. And, you know, studies have shown that uh, the more diverse an organization is, generally the more successful it is, especially if uh, it's working in multiple markets. And one of the things I find from an HR perspective is how disappointing it is, how few CHROs are on the board of directors. You know, I hear uh, a lot of noise from MNCs, from multinational companies saying, you know, people are our future, people are our business. I'm like, what was well, so is the CHRO on your board? No. Well, how can you say that people are your business then? Okay. You should have uh, a CHRO, an HR director on your board, okay, as uh, a key decision maker for, for policy. Otherwise, how can you claim that? So, I mean, I'm not one for, uh, let's say, ticking boxes, all right, um, because I think that achieves nothing. I actually think it's quite insulting um, because the problem with uh, positive discrimination is that, you know, people will just assume, ah, you just got given that job because of 
somebody wants to tick a box and feel important. Okay, I'm totally against any kind of discrimination. I mean, I believe that, you know, nobody's born prejudiced in any way. And unconscious bias is an issue all around the world. I mean, we make friends with people who have common interests. Um, So therefore, when you hire people to work for you, you think, well, do I like this person? Can I get on with them? Um, Rather than would they be a good fit? I mean, when I hire, I look obviously for ability. I look for motivation, but I also look for attitude. I mean, you know, I can mop the floor. I'd rather not have to do it. I will if I have to. But ultimately, it's not just about can you do it? Do you want to do it? Okay, how are you going to fit in with the rest of the team? And I genuinely believe that having a more diverse team makes things more successful. You can understand your customers better. Um, you know, I worked for one organization where uh, the entire board was, what do they call it, male, stale and pale. It was just a bunch of, you know, gray haired guys in their late 60s who never left head office. And, you know, they were very good at reading figures, but, you know, they never met a customer uh, and they had very little idea of what was going on one or two generations below them who are the main customers at the end of the day. So if you don't understand your customers, well, you know, somebody else will. I think um, as diverse as your team is, the more diverse ideas that will be brought to the table, which is so we live in a world where we cater to different set of customers and to cater to that different set of customers, we need different people who come from different backgrounds, who have different experiences in their life. And again, I mean, I look at my generation and think, well, when I started my recruitment career, uh, mobile phones were just coming in. This was 1998. But CVs were sometimes still sent by fax. We were just starting to use email, but there was no Internet. I think after a year or two, we got one and there was one in the corner that was a dial up. And, you know, there was certainly no LinkedIn or no WhatsApp or anything like that for many, many years. Um But you still found a way. And I actually found that one of the reasons I don't think the recruitment business will disappear with AI anytime soon is that ultimately, although I joke about this, uh, recruitment is the only business where the product can say no. Okay, Um, you know, we don't do genetic engineering. We can only work with what exists. And clients need to tell us what they're looking for. And I say to them, look, what's not on the job description? Tell me about what the hiring manager is like, or ideally he or she can tell us. What kind of person are they looking for? And I say, okay, what are you like to work with? Okay, what kind of person? Do you want someone who's just going to come in, you tell them what to do, and they nod their head and do it? Or do you want someone who's going to come and challenge you? All right, what's your corporate culture like? What was the previous person like? Why did they leave or... You know, what happened to them? Uh, And I don't believe a computer will be able to do that anytime soon. Uh, Not while I'm still working anyway. And, you know, I think that I've seen companies try to be the Uber of recruitment by having portals and it's always failed. I think that if the recruitment industry could have been commoditized, it would have been a long time ago, that we still need the human element, you know, to work out, is somebody going to get counteroffered? How many other job offers do they have? Um, You know, brokering the offer. I've seen companies just send a job, sorry, a job offer to somebody and it gets rejected because it was done too quickly. It wasn't sold to them properly. And that's the value added that an agency can bring. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can't take away the human element from the, not just from the human resource, I mean, from any part of the organization, as long as, I mean, that human intervention, that human intelligence the yeah. that we carry is something so important that can't be. No, no, absolutely. And I, I, again, I don't think that this will change anytime soon, that 
you know, uh, I mean, if you think about it, if you received a message, whether it's a WhatsApp or an email from an automated computer saying, you know, dear sir, your profile matches one of our vacancies, unless you were desperately looking for a job, you'd probably ignore it. Whereas if you had a call or even a LinkedIn message from a real person um, saying, hi, I'm from Randstad. We've got a really interesting vacancy that's come up that I'd like to talk to you about you know, when can we connect? There's a high chance that person will take the call. And especially at the more senior level, which I work at, it's very rare that these people are looking for a job, all right? They're not even browsing job ads in most cases. And their CVs are certainly not on any Naukri or any, you know, open source, all right? You're not going to stumble across these people. They're possibly not even in your database, all right? You've got to go out to them directly. And uh, I still think that uh, we're a long way away from... uh, any computer doing that, at least not not before I retire. Yeah, definitely. And I completely agree with the example you gave. gave. I mean, yes, that's actually true. I mean, we keep on receiving these um, AI automated emails, which we really don't take, give that much importance. But when somebody who's an actual person reaches out to us, obviously there's a chance of taking the conversation ahead. It's so true. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I'm not a Luddite. I mean, I do understand that there are advances in technology which can help, you know, and I've seen, you know, bots can, that can do, let's say, some sort of screening, uh, you know, when there's been a thousand applications, especially for lower level jobs, that can work. And the makers of these bots will actually claim that when they interview people, people are more honest with a bot uh, than with a normal person because they think, hang on a minute, Um this is like a lie detector. They're going to work out whether I'm uh, telling the truth or not, um, which I thought was interesting. But this is unlikely. Also, I find that it's very rare that people lie at a senior level. All right. And things like this can usually be found out quite quickly. Um, you know, and it's a small market at the end of the day. And you really don't want to destroy your reputation over something silly. You know, a couple of calls to someone and you can work it out all very fast. And the computer's not going to do that. Definitely. So with this, we come to the end of this podcast. Thank you, Luke, for joining us. It was such a pleasure to have you. And I hope we get to go off the path again soon. And thank you for our listeners to tune into this episode.